everybody, it's Alice here with another episode of Poetry Says For You. What I have for you today is an interview with David Stavanger. David describes himself as an Australian poet, performer, cultural producer, editor and lapsed psychologist. And his new book of poetry is Case Notes, which has just come out from UWA Publishing. And I was actually going to be part of the launch for this book in mid-March, and I had hoped to interview David in person when he came down to Melbourne. But I think there's something even more intimate about this conversation. I hope that you can hear that when you listen to it. So we talk quite a bit here about David's new book, Case Notes, which I really enjoyed. It has a couple of my favorite poems of his in it, including The Electric Journal, which he wrote while undergoing the experience of ECT, and also Mouth, that I saw him perform down here in Melbourne when he came for a reading a few years ago. And as you'll hear in this interview, that was a reading that kind of springboarded me into a whole new area of my life. So we talk quite a bit about David's book, but we also talk about a whole range of other things, which is, as you know, my favorite thing to do on this podcast. Something about the work that David does that I really appreciate is he investigates and questions accepted language. And so that's where we start by talking about the term self-care and how legitimate we think that that term is. And that also leads into a few other terms like sleep hygiene or gig economy. And we talk about the way that terms like these can work to create comfort in other people rather than actually addressing the problem that they might refer to. We also have a really great chat in this interview about the work of being a producer in the arts. David has spoken before and talks a bit here about his experience of burnout. And that's an experience that I I also have um, a relationship to. And I think it's really valuable to hear somebody just talk really matter-of-factly about what that is and what it takes to be a producer in the arts, the kind of the deal that you make when you decide to do that kind of work. We also have a lot of fun reading out a poem of David's from his book called Dog Minding, and I get to play the part of the dog Harry, which is very, very fun. So I really hope that you enjoy this. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. I was so pleased to get the chance to talk to David, even though we didn't get to chat in person. But hey, maybe one day soon we will. Enjoy. I would like to start by asking you about the last poem in this book. So the the new book is called Case Notes, and it was going to be launched in Melbourne in mid-March. That didn't end up happening. Did you get a chance to launch it anywhere? Um, Yeah, I did. I I, I did get a few events in, which were really special. I think being the kind of poet I am, um, having come from a performance background, but also being really aware when you publish with, you know, smaller presses, um... And in this case, case notes came out with UWAP. There's a huge um, self-reliance on getting the book out there into places and getting your own gigs. And I don't mind that. That's part of kind of like I hate the phrase gig economy, though. I can't stand that. I think I think that's a bullshit way to kind of um, conceptualize what it is. But um, 
I'd been really fortunate to do a really uh, small, beautiful launch in Wollongong, which kind of felt like a strange full circle thing because I'm living down here now. I studied down here when I was a, a psychologist. Um, that's where I studied. And my son lives down here. So that seemed like an appropriate, beautiful place upstairs in a collective co-op bookshop, which unfortunately is now closed down through this COVID um, times. Um, and I also did a launch in Perth in a bookshop to two people and my publisher, Terry Ann, uh, which felt like uh, kind of weirdly appropriate. But I then got to, was very lucky to do some readings at the Perth Festival's um, Literature and Ideas and a reading, probably the most amazing reading I've ever done actually, Adelaide Writers Week uh, on stage with a number of poets, but particularly to share the stage with Ali Kobe Ekerman and Joy Harjo. Um, I'll, I'll never forget that, outdoors. Um, and, and that was only like, yeah, a week or two before. But I had a hold. I, I put a lot of work into a hold to uh, festivals, events, launches, including the one that was going to be in Melbourne at um, Hairs on Hyenas and uh, the Gig at La Mama. But, um, yeah, that's just the way things are now. Yeah. Why do you hate the phrase gig economy? I don't like it very much either, but I've never really unpacked why. Uh, I think it's just one of those cheap throwaways that makes people feel more comfortable that we even have an economy in the arts um, and that somehow live gigs are of economic benefit to artists when often they're not. They're often about connecting to audiences or um, testing work or trying to get a book out there in some way. I mean, you rarely make money off sort of launches. Most musicians, you know, there are musicians who make money off, off it as well, but I just think it's, there's a convenience to it. It offers comfort to those that don't have to actually engage with it. So I'm, I'm, I'm always cautious of language and the way it's used to make people feel at ease. Yes. That is something I wanted to ask you about as well with the book. Um, maybe we'll come to that last poem in a little bit, but, the thing that Case Notes does, and this um, definitely occurs in the special as well, is that it resists the commodification of language. You're resisting things being confined to neat boxes, to linearity, you know, the hashtagification of language. I wonder what you think about the term self-care. Is that a term that resonates for you or irritates you or both no i i think what in, what yeah what inhabits that phrase is really important and and not a particularly hasn't been a particular strength of mine i think um i i, I think somebody who's had significant kind of lived mental health experiences and everyone can define what that means for them in their own yeah Point of point of view. I think I think I've relied often too much on kind of carers, uh, their kind of external care, and um, and and most of the time being like struggling. Except also at the same time being high functioning, which is another interesting phrase in the arts and in mental health. So I kind of go between those the two binaries. And the idea of self care, I think. Um, I've learned through someone in particular in my life that self-care is very specific. It means sleep. It means going to the beach. It means walking the dog. It means getting off social media. It means taking medication when you need to take it. It means remember that poetry is not saving lives. Um, yeah, so I kind of come to love that term, even though I know it can be bandied around lightly. 
Yeah, I, I think I have a similar relationship with it. I read a really fantastic essay about a year ago that I always forget the title of, but it's something along the lines of, no, I cannot have coffee with you. And it's just about the, um, <laughs> the amount of time that this particular female academic spends having coffee with her students and kind of giving out free advice. And she brings up a whole bunch of different themes, but one of them is this idea, she's American, writing from a US perspective, and brings up this idea that self-care can be used to stand in for care that can and should be given by health care institutions you know so self-care look after yourself do yoga meditate because you can't afford like to go and see a psychologist for example but I think you're absolutely right too that there's this daily side to self-care it's the boring unsexy repetition of little tasks that keep you safe I, I just speak for myself that's how it works for me you know it is a case of sleeping, eating, exercising, meditating. Well, I think you know, sleep is is central in 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 these times and very much in mental health and 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 and, and something that is often a real struggle for for a lot of um, people. I, I hate sexy. Well, I hate even the word sexy. I hate everything. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, hate, I hate phrases like sleep hygiene. Again, it's trying to compact down something that makes people feel comfortable. They can just say to, say to someone as sort of a catch-all, you know, make sure you sleep, practicing good sleep hygiene without really sort of looking at what, what does that actually mean? Like that can mean such, such an individual experience to live to mental health uh, experience. And, and again, it's, it's about creating comfort in the external other, not the person suffering. And that's what I, what I feel like happens a lot. And self-care also involves seeing a psychiatrist. Occasionally it means hospitalizing yourself. Occasionally it, it, it means a lot of things that aren't very appealing and don't and, and actually a cause of discomfort. You know, self-care, um, it, it, it isn't always a place, a, place, a place of comfort, but it is about necessity to me. Yeah, yeah, it's a non-negotiable, even if nobody's going to give you points for doing these things um i feel like all these themes are explored so beautifully in so many of the poems in case notes but is it is there one in particular you'd like to read sort of tease this out a little bit yeah i suppose yeah there's there's i'll, I'll read the uh, this uh what is it the third poem in the book i suppose this isn't i suppose it is about self-care but not really <laughs> Because <laughs> self-care in this isn't maybe always directly addressed. It is definitely there, particularly in a poem towards the end, which I, I don't really read. I don't think I don't know if I'll ever read it actually, because to me it's I don't know. You have those poems where you're like, um, I'm not sure I'm meant to read this, called Shell, which is probably one of the more tender things I've written. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, okay. Whereas this poem, Stock Market, does address that kind of. Use of language, I suppose, commodification of language, and then sort of turns it back and sort of looks at sort of the way we, we, the way self care can be positioned as something that's a commodity. Mm. Stock market, bipolar record lows, insecurities exchange, new rashes trending daily, each doctor a new violence. A meteor gets closer to your face, it misses and hits your face anyway. It's hard to match choice of dog to the make of car you're called to chase. 
lightness of spirit in heavy hands, carry a briefcase full of uppers. This latest crash has people talking, reports of a rise in self-flagellation. If you could talk to the board, you would tell them not to sell right now. The best groomed of us can sweet talk our way out of any pill. Graphs seem to indicate that the voices we hear are our own. Companies are becoming more sensitive to the profit margins of lost sleep. Free floating liquid options, patents publicly traded nil by mouth. The highest point in the building is the time to open up the pigeons, but the shares get us nowhere. Write that down in a blank notepad. Another script without a lead, don't buy into things you can't see, look around. They've constructed a suicide fence on one side of the story bridge. Perhaps when we plan of jumping, we dream of progress. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> I felt really moved to hear you read. It made me, just reminded me how much I was looking forward to reading alongside you down here in Melbourne. Yeah, you want to be part of the um, part of the launch. Um, yeah, I was really—I mean, I was really looking forward to reading it. Some of the pieces, you know, they definitely have a performative element to them, um, even though I don't do as much performance now, um, and, and a rhythm and a cadence that I can kind of get caught up in. Actually, it's good that actually I, I could actually mention the little coda in the end of that refers to the Story Bridge in Brisbane, where a lot of people have jumped. And um, I remember driving home after a poetry gig. I think I was working for the Queensland Poetry Festival and I noticed they put a fence up on one side of the bridge and not the other. And I was talking to my partner and um, we're like, what's that about? And we realized it, it was a suicide fence, but they, th at that stage, they only put one side up. And there was something about that that really struck me, having gone through a period of being, you know, having quite intense ideation myself. It just struck me as... Um, strangely sad and, and, and beautiful and so it's saying something about our response to these things too. Yeah, that very, like you say, performative or just kind of like a, a response that is to make the people who are responding feel better and not actually change anything. Um, yeah. yeah, like, I, like, I'm, like I, yeah, I'm actually for, like, like that I am, I totally agree, like suicide fences don't, even that phrase is kind of disturbing that, that that's such a, like a council phrase. Um, but I, I am for that, but it doesn't address underlying issues, but there was something about that. They'd only put one side up for about a week. There was just one side you could still jump off the other. I don't, it just, yeah, it was, it just, it struck me. It still strikes me. And just the fact it's called the story bridge. Yeah. All the, you know, these weird things that land in our, lap as writers while we're going through things in real time yeah yeah, yeah. i wanted to pick up on what you said about moving away from performance is that something you have done in a conscience a conscious way or is that just happened over time not not so much uh conscious um and i always consider i just consider myself a poet when when i was doing um performance poetry and spoken word became the sort of term I used to sort of phrase myself in bios as a spoken weird artist because I wasn't really comfortable with the spoken word term um, because of how people some people would use that to limit what you could do within your work and I love performance poetry I love it I love poetry in print so to me it's all part of it I think a combination of 
I started to get into producing a lot, producing spoken word, producing poetry, whether it was Woodford Folk Festival or Queensland Poetry Festival and advocacy and also started moving to more an editorial space, being interested in how do you take performance poetry into these other spaces, um, particularly uh, journals and anthologies, which to me, there'd been quite a bit of erasure or absence. Um, and yeah, like the writing became more um, more interior and less sort of me wanting to... Yeah, project work out into the world combined with just being on really heavy antidepressants, antipsychotics, and then getting ECT and having real other issues with the memory, recall, and also um, develop massive anxiety about memorization. And yet I miss that. There's, an, there's certain pieces I can still do, and I, I do want to do it again, but um, I used to memorize 80% of my stuff, where now it would be like 5%. And there's a real freedom in that. There's an incredible freedom to me. And that kind of um, that muscular knowing to just be there with work, and then each time it's its own lived thing. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that memorization is is something that's not as available to you at the moment. I... Oh, don't don't apologize. Like, and I don't even know if it's that. Like, I have had side effects from ECT with memory, and I've lost memories. But I I think a lot of it now is actually. Um, just an anxiety that's developed around that, that 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 will happen. So I'm slowly reclaiming that. Oh, that's really cool to hear. Because, yeah, there is nothing like the freedom of knowing what you're going to say and being able to look somebody in the face while you are saying it. It is, it is really wonderful. I'll never forget seeing you perform uh, Mouth at Long Play. Um, this is going back a few years now. And it was the first time I'd seen you read and you did sections from Electric Journal, which was incredible. And like, to me, it was like kind of like hearing a rock song. And then you did Mouth as well. And yeah, that event, that that afternoon at Long Play was what kind of kicked off what eventually became Lost Weekend and has now become Impossible Machine as an offshoot of that. Um, it's just really crazy to me that like that all just stemmed from that one chance of like, oh, I guess I'll go along to this thing, you know, <laughs> and now like half my life is based there or was, I don't know what's going to happen to long play, but, um, yeah, it's interesting times. That's such a beautiful anecdote. And, and I know you've mentioned that before and I'm really, I'm really moved by that because I know, I know the people in, in, in my trajectory who've been that, those moments, those people that have definitely springboarded me into other spaces and it's a really important part of poetry and the poetry community and 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 live events for me and long play uh, that gig i remember that gig well that's part of this part of my memory functioning well um you know anthony o'sullivan and, and santo and amanda who run that gig uh, that's such an incredible space that'd probably be one of my favorite gigs i've ever done actually one of my favorite features um and, and, and Mouth, like, uh, that's an older piece, and I finally put it in the book because it just felt like – it put it in this book because it feels like it sits alongside it. So I, I love that piece because it's one of those pieces that every time I perform it, it becomes something else, and, and that is muscle memory. I haven't lost that one. Yeah, yeah, I was really excited to see it in here as well as Electric Journal. I wanted to ask you about producing as well because we were just talking about events and you mentioned Queensland Poetry Festival – I remember 
I think maybe it was that same trip or maybe another one when you came down to Melbourne and, and somehow we ended up walking along Collins Street um, and you said, how long have you been doing poetry stuff for, Alice? And I was like, oh, about 10 years. And you were like, and you're still a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's really lovely. <laughs> but um, I get it because, like, the production side, uh, and I'm talking more about improv now than poetry, but, like, it can be really unforgiving and really thankless. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think that trip was um... – I, I think I think I was down there. I was very fortunate to get the RMIT Australian Poetry Residency. And I think That's it right. might have been Elaine Elaine uh, Elaine Miles had read. I think Quinn Eads was interviewing them. Um, yeah, um, that's, a, that's a that's a funny quote. Um, yeah, I, I think I've come to really really value the quality of the person behind the work. And I'm a huge advocate and love anyone who puts themselves in a space of creating spaces for other poets in any way, whatever they're, whichever way they're called to do it. Because I think, you know, like one of my mentors who really inspired me was, uh, was a New York-based uh, performance poet, um, multi-voice artist called Emily XYZ, and, you know, still a dear friend. And I remember her saying to me when she was in Brisbane at, uh, doing – a residency just that you know every poet has to be um a servant to their art form at some stage and that's always amongst many things she said really resonated with me the idea of you know this is not really an art of self-interest if you frame it like that yes you're going to write some good poems and you you know you might have fantastic craft but for me personally and that's just this is just my uh, way my philosophy is that you're missing the point like the, the po- poetry community isn't, isn't, isn't a phrase like self-care. It's a living thing. And I think if you have the capacity, and not everyone does, and there's many different ways to do it. You don't have to be upfront and obvious about it, but to give back to this art form. And I see you doing it, and I see – I get so excited. Like that's one of the things I loved about meeting you, the fact that, you know, creating the space for others to make work is, is, a sen- is central to your own practice. And um, I definitely come from that space. But I think when you do that, particularly if you, you know, people f- phrase poetry as a very contested space. Like there's a, there's a lot of poets and there's not a lot of opportunities. And that is true to a degree. Um, and, yes, we all feel like we, you know, in, in our own way sort of deserve or require certain spaces to kind of grow our grow our work and extend what we can do. But at the same time, I just think there's a basic – uh, decent level, uh, decent way of behaving, and there's unacceptable behaviour in in the arts. And unfortunately, there's a very small percentage, which I unfortunately have encountered in poetry, who um, make people taking those roles either they contribute to people burning out, they contribute to people walking away from poetry. And I think I'm starting to see that start to fade away. Maybe it's a generational thing, um, but I. There's always going to be points of difference. I love points of difference. I love constructive discussion. But um, I think we should support anyone who, in a very underpaid way, puts themselves in a space to help facilitate the ongoing existence of poetry. That's a long answer. No, no, it's a great answer. It's a great answer. Um, there's a lot in that. I'm, I'm wondering how do we know then 
if we've given too much? How do we know when we've done our work being a servant to poetry and it's it's time to regenerate? Yeah, that's a really good question. I didn't know that. Um, you know, I, I, I've learnt it now and I'm in my later 40s. So, you know, 12 years in, in and around the art form and I overproduced, overgave, oversupported um, and underfocused on the things that really matter. Like for me, being a parent, being a partner, um, became dependent on certain substances, became dependent on psych psychiatric psychological um supports sometimes for just working in the arts i would go in and have sessions and it would just be about that and at that point um and also i think the capacity for joy diminishes and you start to dislike poetry and 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 dislike um and resent the fact that you are giving to it and I think at that point, um, you, you have to step right away, which is what I did in 2018, went and lived in a kind of little hut, it's a bit cliched, uh, near Mullumbimby and didn't really do that much work and didn't do that much writing and just really tried to recover from spectacular burnout. I've only burned out twice in my life. One, after 10 years of psychology, predominantly in drug and alcohol kind of regional rural psychology and mental health and this time after really giving at you know um, severely underpaid levels while working you know extensively to grow poetry at that stage particularly in Queensland wow I didn't realize that um it took you to that point although Mullumbimby heart sounds pretty great I have to say that sounds really awesome <laughs> It was great, except yeah. that like I had, you know, the pay, you know, I've been freelancing for 10 years. Like now is the first time, ironically, I have a con part-time contract in the arts and and generally sticking to my hours and feel completely respected by the organisation. And it's ta taught me that I, I can work on poetic projects that I love without having to give everything and for it to cost everything. Because I think poetry has given me a lot, but I've also given too much to poetry and that's been my choice i don't I, yeah it's not like trying to position for sympathy or like um it's anyone else's fault that's that's part of my that's also part of how my mania plays out it's kind of like yeah it's almost like my head is on fire it, it, when, when i get into sort of like the possibilities um in producing um spoken word and poetry so yeah, it's been a big lesson, but it's been, look, it's a good lesson to learn. And, and I really think more mentoring and support for younger producers to be able to talk about that experience and the, and the lack of infrastructure around it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think this is actually a really valuable conversation because the production side is basically um, unrecognized, like unnoticed work. And obviously I'm saying this is a producer so I have a stake in its recognition. But, um, yeah, it's not so much needing thanks or recognition, but I suppose for anyone who's listening who is a producer of this kind of stuff, and obviously right now, like me, you're in a very weird world of limbo, but, um, yeah, just acknowledging that, like, it's, it's really, really tiring sometimes and it's legitimate work and even though you'll probably never get paid for it it's it's a lot of work and so 
yeah, don't be surprised if you're tired and grumpy sometimes. That's all I would say. Yeah, I think I think that like there's so many amazing poet producers right now giving so much to the community. Like uh, whether it's Benny Solar at Melbourne Spoken Word or Laurie May in, in Alice Springs with Red Dirt Red Dirt Poetry Festival. What an incredible, essentially self-funded, self-produced festival in the in the in the heart of, the, of this place. Like Laurie May is an incredible poet and 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 giving too much. Benny giving too much, but that's what it requires of you. And then it's about how long you can sustain that, what supports you have around you and yeah, knowing when you need to pull back. I also think there's points of handing over, like everybody wants features, everybody wants opportunities, everybody wants a book out. But I think that it would be good to see more poets step into that void and carry the load um, that creates those opportunities. Um, And it's not for everyone. Another one's Rayleigh Lancaster, who uh, amazing emerging poet and writer and um, one of the co-directors of the Young Writers Festival in Newcastle. Um, there's so there's so many. I mean, I, I'm particularly mentioning younger producers. I know older producers as well. Um, and I, I, I admire anybody. And I think you have to it, you have to have some sort of vision and take things as far as that vision as you can. And you're not going to take everyone along with you on the way. And some people are going to, you know, push back or, but that's okay. That's all part of it. You, there's no point directing, being an artistic director or lead producer, unless you've got a really clear vision and maybe like a three to five year plan on what you're trying to do with that project or do with that festival. Um, no point doing that, giving all that and maintaining a status quo. Absolutely. Yeah. Make sure that it's making you happy primarily. And so, yeah, and just growing, growing that, growing that platform in new ways, yeah. and broadening that platform, evolving, shaking it up, whatever it is. Like, and I think the community generally really supports that and knows that. Um, but occasionally, yeah, I, 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 it, it's not a very giving thing to be the producer or director in a in a poetic space. And and same for all the writers' festival directors I know. They're like even the bigger writers' festival directors that I know, the level at which they give. Um, and the expectations they're trying to meet are not sustainable. So I think that's – I'm hope, hoping through this that some of that might lessen and there's greater appreciation for working artists in the arts. Mm. Is there a poem that links to any of this in case notes, do you think? Um, we, we've gone beautifully off, away from the book. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. Totally we fine. should come back. No, no, yeah. Um. Oh, look, not really. I mean, I don't really – this book's sort of like um, – I mean, I, I kind of call it a sequel to the special. Yeah. But it, but it isn't really. It's just – that's just a loose association because it has a similar structure, five segments, which is sort of a play on the DSM-5, which I'm not a massive fan of, um, which is the main diagnostic statistical manual used to prescribe or diagnose somebody um, with a mental illness. Yeah, I, I, it, it, I suppose it doesn't. I mean, it goes down a number of avenues, but I, the arts itself, I don't know. I, 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 when I started out, I was a poet that occasionally write about poetry. I mentioned the word poet poetry in my work, but now I'm not a big fan. I, I just find it personally a bit, I mean, all poetry self-indulgent to a degree, but I just, for me, I've been around long enough that I should be writing with a broader sweep than that or going deeper than that. So I don't really tend to write about the industry or poets or 
you know, it doesn't really even interest me to interrogate what poetry is. I'm more interested now in documentation and finding ways, even if it's even if it's slightly wider lens or a slightly different way of doing it, ways for me to document, yeah, both the lived experience and also, I suppose, the the outside of the room. Like I often see poems as a room, and then what really interests me in the poem is everything that's banging on the roof or banging on the inside of the walls, and I'm trying to always capture that. And to me. That's a very separate place for me than when I'm doing production. Yeah. No, I really love that. Well, that actually does bring me to the poem that I wanted to ask you about, one of them, which is the final poem in the book, Dog Minding. Well, it's not really the final poem because there is, there is a section right at the end, sort of a glossary, which is really great. But I wanted to ask you about this poem. The structure of it, if I can have a go at describing it, is a conversation, a back and forth between yourself and a dog that you are minding. Is that fair to say? That's called dog minding. That's a very accurate <laughs> description of that poem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it reminds me of, do you know the Paul Kelly song, Other People's Houses? Yes. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of that. I don't feel like there's enough written about the weird, intimate experience of being in someone else's space. And this poem talks a little bit about that. And also just the exchange between the two speakers is, is just wonderful because the, the human has all these concerns and then the dog has all these other concerns. It's fun and sweet and sad and just, yeah, I, I would love to hear about what it was like to write it. That poem was written in... Um, uh, Petrie Terrace Paddington in Brisbane, the first version of it, it was an incredibly intense, humid, very typical kind of Brisbane summer. Gee, that's the worst way to open a novel, what I just said then. I described the weather straight up. <laughs> you never do that. Hey, that's what they say in those writing courses. Um, but, yeah, and I was uh, dog-minding, uh, house-sitting for some close, beautiful friends of mine, uh, small kind of miner's cottage, and I have this um, – beautiful dog whose name is Harry. It was incredibly hot. There was no way to really cool myself. And I was starting to have a hypermanic, manic kind of break. So in part I was there. So my partner at the time could have some space from me because I had boarded on being hospitalized around then. And um, yeah, I started to write these sort of strange exchanges because I was starting, some of the, some of the lines I was starting to hear Harry talk to me and talk to me about the house and um there was an exchange going on and harry would just sort of sit there and stare at me kind of wanting to go out and the more he stared the more he talked and i i kind of made these notes like i've done with a few poems here and came back to them later but i wasn't in that state and putting the book together and i was like oh i really like this um I'm going to develop this further. I put a few of them on facebook i don't mind doing that i kind of use facebook sometimes with little fragments little vignettes and I was doing that. I was sort of posting them in a kind of like manic kind of fever every couple of minutes and people seemed to like them. It wasn't about the reassurance of them liking them, but I don't mind social media sometimes for just fragments of first drafts. I, I, for me, that medium is kind of just the best part of it sometimes. And yeah, I came back to it later and um, it became a dialogue fleshed out and it became far more than that particular dog. It became many dogs that I had known and then 
in many ways in the poem, it's no longer a dog and I'm no longer me through it. It's a quite a long sequence. And then I gave my manuscript to um, Jennifer Compton, who's one of the people who read it, a poetry elder to me I really love, and um, she she's loved the piece, and that was really reassuring. That was reassuring. And then I showed Laura Jean Mackay, who um, has mentored me before and one of my favourite writers, and her insights into this poem were incredible. She really just pushed me to think about it. You know, it has to really be an exchange it was more based on what I needed. The dog was, there wasn't really an exchange from the dog's point of view, whatever the dog was. And I had to really think about, she pushed me to think about what the dog actually was in this context. And without revealing that I became aware what was going on. And I'm, I'm so thrilled with it. Like it's been rejected a few times by, I put it out there a couple of times to journals and got rejected, but that's totally fine. I back, I back this poem completely. I'd like to try and read it live if I can find the right co-reader. I've never read it. So do you want to read some? Yeah, I can read a little bit. It's it's pretty it's pretty long. I don't even know what the voice is. I don't do voices. You know how some poets are really good? Do you do voices? Can you do like different voices? Uh, I have a couple of characters whose voices I do. Yeah. it was uh, Actually, do you have the book there? I do. Why don't you read one of the voices? Cool. Okay. I, I wasn't angling for that at all. Listeners. No, I know you weren't, but I just thought. <laughs> I was. <laughs> uh, do you want to be Harry or me? Yeah, no, I definitely want to be Harry. Okay, cool. So this is dog mining. We'll start from the beginning. Dog mining starts with a Sigmund Freud quote. We are not in the least surprised when a dog quotes a line of poetry. It's my birthday. I'm 35 today. That's only an estimate. Everyone is three when first picked up. Based on what? Mild muscle waste, milky ways, tartar buildup? You have a cataract. You limp. Your doctor said half your teeth are broken. Quacks. Clouds for eyes. I'm 35. Who hasn't eaten a rock? What did you get me for my special day? I wrote a poem as you, to you, from me. Prefer animals as animals. Where is it? Attached to my collar, next to my ID tag. Projection. The first principle of pleasure. And let's do one more. You do Harry well. That's great. <laughs> this is just That's my normal voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a good, um, you have a good um, Harry voice. I'm just trying to find which one to go to that I like. Your ears remind me of checkpoints. Poetic devices are overrated. You want to hear some Japanese folk stories? No. I'm so thankful for your unconditional love. That's a false premise. No, you sit there looking at me with soft eyes. Just because I'm sitting here doesn't mean I see you. That's fun. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, you could do the whole you could do the whole thing. Just It's funny because it's dialogue. It's interesting because it's like um it's dialogue of even reading dialogue of me, it puts me in a weird sort of um like I'm not an actor. I'm actually so not a fan of actors reading poetry. There's so many people who love getting actors to um, take some piece of uh, poems. I love poets reading their own work. I, I'm not a fan of actors reading poetry. But, yeah, that's interesting. That piece I do want to develop into something, maybe even like a short film. I don't know. It's got it's got life beyond just there. I just I, don't yeah. yeah. I really think that's that's true for sure. You mentioned Jennifer Compton when we were talking about that poem and as somebody who read the whole book she was somebody who encouraged you a little bit with 
the Electric Journal too. Was is that right? Yeah, the first time I read so the Electric Journal's a very long poem. Uh, that's one of the older pieces in the collection. I was going to call the whole book that actually. Um, Laura Jean McKay kind of encouraged me, but uh, uh, case notes. I just knew that was the name when I heard that. Um, I underwent ECT in two thousand and I think it was two thousand and sixteen. And during that, I made notes during those weekly over those couple of weeks. And um, I don't re- honestly don't remember making the notes. I'm not trying to set some sort of romanticized mythology to it, but I honestly don't. And I don't know if you've ever done this where you come across writing and query if it's yours or, or whether you've cut and paste it. And I found that and I was just so um, first of all, I was kind of devastated by it. And then. I realized there was something there. So I kept writing based on that time and fleshed it out. And I read it at um, the Salt Room in Canberra, which was a gig run by Andrew uh, Galan, um, dear friend, um, amazing advocate for poetry in Canberra. And um, Jennifer Compton was on the bill. And I read the read it and it was just one of those amazing readings. I just knew how to read this piece. And there was one of those really strange pin drop I hate to say it, kind of electric, which is <laughs> kind of an inappropriate thing, but it didn't feel like trauma porn. I thought it might feel a bit like that. I thought it might position me. I'm really don't want to position the reader in this work as a, a victim, my, myself as a victim or kind of elicit sympathy or empathy. I'm trying to create distance from it while being at the center of it. That's kind of been the goal of it. And Jen, Jen just came up to me and just said, fuck me. I'm throwing my set list out. I'm just going to do a loose improv comedy that reminded me of um, Allen Ginsberg reading How. Now, that's a bit over the top, but you need those moments too. You need someone to come up and say, wow, the way you went with that work, unbelievable. Thank you for going there. Here's me acknowledging what that work does and what you've done within that work. So I was a bit blown away by that because I, I respect Jennifer you know, immensely and love her, love her work and love her. So... That sort of was one of the moments where I went, okay, I'm going to use this as a spine of a collection, but I'm not just going to center direct experiences here. I'm going to make more observational pieces. There's quite a few prose poems in this, which are kind of absurdist observational pieces written as kind of like absurd case notes of everyday scenarios um, and a a few drawing back to my days as a psychologist, but not so much this time. Yeah, that separation that you're talking about there between the – because there is, I think, trauma, but like you say, it's not It's not like we are being asked to witness something in any way more than we need to. Like there's just a real friendliness to the book as a whole, I think, and a real kind of acceptance and like this is just how it is. Um, there's also humour as well. And, yeah, I think that's, like, you've definitely achieved that to get away from that that trauma porn space. That's so great to hear. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to sort of frame how people should, definitely not trying to frame how other people should write about trauma at all. That's not, I don't think anybody should tell anybody how they write about trauma. But for me, I felt I wanted to, I wanted distance for it to be able to really write about it, but not remove myself from it. That's kind of, yeah, the frame I had. And I wanted people to respond to the writing more than the content, more than the subject. 
um, matter. So, and so far, like what you've just said is that's so great. I mean, I do have a bit of a kind of black survivalist kind of humor. That's not going to change. That's, that's part of my frame, my lens in life. I've had that since very young. Um, <laughs> I'm drawn to that, but you know, um, I think I've always, my, a lot of my practice previously had been about the art of discomfort in a live space. And it was like, how do you explore discomfort um, without maybe completely setting the terms of reference or exactly positioning the reader in, in a way that makes them aware of how they're supposed to respond? Like, I'll read the Electric Journal and there are lines, three people in the audience will awkwardly laugh, someone else will burst out laughing someone else will gasp and they, I see the audience look at each other going what are we allowed to do here mm. and that kind of interests me because that's I think a lot of the lived mental health experience and just the lived experience is is is, is an awkwardness of what is there's so much consciousness about what is the appropriate response or what's the what's the what what is the permissible um, response being set up here um, being created what's the protocol and in poetry my poetry i'm kind of interested in the idea of not giving that to a reader or an audience yeah we just have to respond honestly oh yeah just respond like i don't have any expectations i just i just i don't mind if people laugh or don't laugh i just i just feel like um i kind of understand the intent of the i understand the intent of this work more than a pre previous work and i also yeah, I mean, there's a couple of pieces in there that I'm really uncomfortable that they're in there, really uncomfortable, and I I, I kept them in there. I think that's great. <laughs> it is great. Yeah. It, is, it is great, but it's um, and also I just I, I don't know. I, I just think I, I'm really interested in the idea of the the, the I first person in poetry, and particularly I, I the idea that that is truth, the idea that, that is an absolute version of you or direct, a direct insight or that there's no sense of the unreliable narrator in the eye when to me there absolutely is always and even more so when you have this combination of unreliable memory and um mental health interventions whether they be medication or things like act which affect the reliability of documenting things there's inaccuracies which are also truths so yeah i think it's that creates uncertain ground. It was It's written from uncertain ground, even though there's a strong foundation of intent. If that makes any sense, probably doesn't. <laughs> it, no, it does. It's actually what I was what I was hoping to bring the conversation around to, which is your epigraph. The start of the book says, "Dogs will give an honest bark at the truth." I feel like what the book is doing is kind of bringing secrets onto the page and just you know bringing them into the light. I'm probably making it sound like it's an exercise in healing it's not that either but i'm so not a healer <laughs> <laughs> I, I i it's funny you mentioned that quote because the second and the last bit other dogs bite their enemies i bite my friends to save them is actually almost the key part of that why that's there i because, wondered about that too yeah yeah because and that plays on two things like um my grandfather uh, who was bipolar, who appeared a bit in this special directly and is definitely here and is kind of the top of the family tree on my mum's side when it comes to, um, you know, 
pure what was then manic depression and he suffered immeasurably although he loved his highs he loved getting off his lithium he loved getting off it and i don't blame him because you know he was catatonic catatonic a lot of the rest of the time he had this dog this cocker spaniel called raja he loved and this dog he he was so proud of his ability to train it and one day it bit him on the hand and he ended up in hospital but it turned out his white blood cell count was so 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 low and and he was about he would have died within days and so he got through that remarkably uh to a couple of months but if his dog hadn't bitten him he probably would have died you know at home or like you know in icu very suddenly so that's part of the um i bite my friends to say them kind of struck me in, in a kind of personal level but i also feel like that's part of what what we do you know like to 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 reach out and connect with people sometimes it does require us to to break through to break through in some way to cut through to cut through the bullshit to cut through the pleasantries to show you really care whether it's you really care in the poem or you really care about others and i really care about the subject matter so the poems are sort of biting my friends to save them mm. is there a poem that you would like to read to finish off with uh yeah sure um it was funny because i was saying to you before i was gonna um i hadn't really planned because we'd cancelled a couple times and it's so hard to get a gauge on it's such a weird time to think about oh what am i going to read it feels like a time where reading isn't sort of at the sort of heart of things right now but um (laughs) well i feel weird even just like doing interviews and, and releasing episodes um i haven't written anything for a good long while and yeah it's just like I keep quoting this line to people that I, I'm stealing from a YouTube essay but somebody said something along the lines of um we remember January in the same way that we might remember childhood <laughs> so far away that's great it's pretty good I'm gonna link that's to that good. video because it's it's, yeah. a, it's a good essay that's great yeah. um yeah, no, I think, I think, yeah, it's an interesting time for memory. It's an interesting time for documentation. Although I've got to say, having seen a couple of, I've done a couple of features online and, and obviously everyone's online at the moment. Um, I'm starting to watch the COVID poems appear. Uh-oh. Uh, uh, and um, I think we should probably just, yeah, keep writing poetry, but maybe just document this experience and see what it looks like, see what the writing looks like in four months. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's like, you know, you've got to write the virus poems. You do. I mean, I've written one. I know yeah, uh, everyone's written one. But just keep keep them for now. Hold on to it. And Hold see on to them. But at the same time, yeah, people people need to respond to things. Right. In whatever way they need to. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm going to read um, a poem called Octonaut because um, it's one of my favorite pieces. Oh, good. It's written for my um, son who, who's aware of it. I showed it to him. Um, he's been diagnosed and he's diagnosed on the on the spectrum, autism spectrum, um, which has been a huge relief to him after really feeling different and years of severe psychological and at times physical bullying. And um, part of my move down here, now living in Wollongong and while I really miss Brisbane, it's so good to be close to my son who's turning 14. So, yeah, this poem's a couple of years old now. So it kind of it captures – I think it's really interesting when you feature someone you know and particularly someone in your family or a child in a poem, the poem stays in that moment. So when you read it, it documents him and I and him in particular and his world at that time. 
and I, I look at it now and it's like he, he's a different son already. So anyway, I still love it though. It's called Octonaut. Every time scientists go into the midnight zone, they find a new species. My son is telling me this as he picks at his hands as if they're locks to release. Every time I'm with my son, I'm in that pitch dark, so familiar and unknown, looking for the luminescent when the lamp goes out. Walking across a footbridge, he tells me water is harder than concrete. Someone jumped from this very bridge last week. My son wants to know if he knew that fact before he leapt. I'm not sure what he knew. My son tells me even if he survived the fall, he wouldn't have been able to swim with broken limbs. Sometimes in the midnight zone, there are fish who pass by like sparklers, segmented worms, the snorkel mass of parents trying to understand that which breathes below the surface. All these specialists measuring depth. I don't know what my son sees when he swims alone. I know my son does not live in a world of perpetual darkness. I know he has colossal dreams. He's too tall for his strange thoughts. I don't need a doctor to use the word complex more than once. Every time scientists go into the midnight zone, they see someone's child floating like a lantern, reading alone in the corner of the sea's bed, waiting for experts to name their light. Thank you. I'm so glad that you chose to read that one. Thank you so much for talking to me tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I have to just give one little plug, and that is to um, uh, my publisher, UWAP, who have been really on the pump with the University of Western Australia, threatening to close them down or go online last year. And Terry Ann White, the main publisher, amazing advocate. They put out like 15 to 20 Australian poetry books a year. So... Please support them. If you don't buy case notes, Jill Jones has an amazing new book out. Pion has a book out. Um, Graham Miles has a bunch of amazing poets. But there's so much great poetry coming out, Australian poetry this year, and they're missing out on launches, events, festivals. I don't even care if it's really my book, but su support the poetry imprints, Puncher and Watman, UQP, whoever, uh, Magabala, buy poetry right now because um, the publishers and the poets really need that support. Yeah. Just order a book. Order a book. It'll be delivered. I'm getting them delivered on my radar. Only if you can afford to. Only if you can afford to. Right. Thank you so much, David. Thanks, Alice.